0: Hello oh, and welcome to Banking Transform. I'm your host, Jim Marus, owner and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. The world is faced with uncertain times caused by the global pandemic, combined with the demands for increased equality, diversity, and inclusion. Beyond empty posturing, the banking industry must make a meaningful difference locally and globally on important social issues this includes stronger leadership that looks beyond ethics to also include a moral compass for decisions it also includes increased sustainable investing greater employee involvement in social causes and a change in the hiring and advancement practices that we currently see to better understand the challenges and opportunities faced by banks and credit unions we are joined today by the legendary basketball coach author and inspirational speaker, Mike Jarvis. Using his 25 years as an NCAA coach, as a guide, Mike shares his insights into what leaders and organizations must do today to meet the needs of the community. So welcome to the show, Mike. It's been a while since we spent time together in a Starbucks in Florida discussing your amazing 25-year D1 basketball coaching career, uh, your three books on leadership, and your inspirational speaking career. Your passion for telling stories from the past that have helped you understand the fundamentals of success and what is missing in many institutions really made an impression on me. And as I look at the health and social pandemics that we're now experiencing, it, it seemed like the perfect time to pick your brain on how organizations can better support equality, diversity, and inclusion. And as an industry that has been part of the problem at times, I think we can agree that it's basically time for change. So to get into this a bit, and given the events of the past couple of weeks, what role does the banking industry have in setting the tone for social issues such as racial equality income disparity, diversity, and inclusion?
1: Well, the bank, I think, could play a significant role because that's where the money is. <laughs> and at the end of the day, that's what everybody needs. Everybody needs money. But probably more important than, or as important as the money is opportunity. And so I think the bank could work hand-in-hand hand and should work hand-in-hand hand with those people in the community that are trying to and have demonstrated that they will work at trying to make a difference. And I emphasize that because I think it's got to become a team sport. You know, the bank should not be, quote, unquote, a piggy bank, but they should be a a resource for people.
0: Well, that's a great point. And right now, especially um, in the last couple of weeks, as an African-American, do you believe – financial institutions should take a potentially political position on sensitive subjects such as police brutality or, or the very specific positions such as Black Lives Matter?
1: Well, I think everybody should take a position, but understanding that, you know, many times the positions that we take are not going to be accepted or looked upon favorably because we may not be in agreement. But I think if we could speak the truth and we could look at it not so much as a political position, but as a human position. And for example, you know, let's just take Black Lives Matter. Well, of course, Black Lives Matter, but all lives matter. We're all made in the image and the likeness of God. So, you know, I, I sometimes become offended, you know, when someone says Black Lives Matter, because I know that All lives matter. And so, you know, just something as simple as that, I mean, obviously can get people to at least have a conversation where now people can hear one another and listen to one another.
0: So over the past week or months, many companies, both financial and non-financial services, have posted message on social media about how concerned they are about the recent events or how much they care. What do companies need to do to ensure that their messages aren't just seen as empty rhetoric?
1: Well, I think the first thing, you know, you know just like building a team, you build a team, you build a family, you build a business by building relationships. So I think what businesses have to do and what institutions have to do is I think they have to basically build relationships with the people in within the community and not wait for a crisis to occur to ask what I can do. In other words, build relationships, ask the people before things get out before crazy things happen, like what's going on now, and you know, ask them, what can I do? To help, what can I do to make this work for everybody? Because it's a community. We're all in in one team. You know, when you live in a community, every person is a member of that team, just like we're all a member of this country. And we've got to look upon it just like we would look at our athletic teams. You know, all for one, one for all. You know, we're one community with one purpose, one goal, and that goal is to be the very best that we can be and to really help each other get better and better at whatever we do, whatever our strengths are.
0: You know, it's interesting, uh, this week on Tuesday, there was Blackout Tuesday, and one of the things I saw on Instagram especially was people that said, you know, this is the first time you've said or done anything to any specific person or, or influencer. You know, the first time I've seen you say or do anything with regard to this subject, you know, how can you say it matters to you if it's the first time you said something. So I think that's also what you're referring to, too, that it's got to be an ongoing effort. It can't just be when the spotlight is on your company. It's got to be something that really is ingrained within the organization, isn't it?
1: Well, people have to trust you, and they have to respect you. And those you know, trust and respect are built usually over time and by what people do and what they show, not what they say. So, you know, if if the first time you're asking someone, can you help them, is in a crisis situation, then you probably haven't built up the trust. But in order to build up a trust, you've got to be willing to have conversations with people, to hear what people are saying, and to think about what they're saying, and also to tell them what you're thinking. So it's got to be a two-way street, you know. and. Something that I know there's times in my own coaching career that I could have done a lot better, you know, is really try to understand, you know, the other side.
0: You know, it's interesting you say that because you've gotten to that point three different times in our answers that it really gets down to ongoing conversations. And instead of talking to people, taking the effort, which is certainly harder than talking to people, is to understand them. And, you know, one thing that I'm wondering is the banking industry especially has not been a really good role model in the past around equal opportunities for minorities, including people both of color and women. And, you know, that dynamic is kind of tough to change, but it really goes deeper than just, you know, rhetoric or investments. It really has to do with looking at the overall organization and seeing if they're not just meeting their ethical responsibility, but their moral responsibility as well, isn't it?
1: I think so. I really do. I mean, you know, we know that there is a difference between, you know, your ethics, you know, usually it's what society seems to think, you know, or what the law says or what the rules say, as opposed to your morals in terms of what you really believe. And we also know that sometimes people's morals change. So um, I do believe that institutions should really be the guiding light and set the tone as it relates to opportunities for minorities and people of color, and especially women. And I say especially women because in the black community, and I think in most lower socioeconomic communities, the women are the key. The women are what holds most of the time the families together. I mean, so many of the teams that I coached over the years, very few of them, you know, as related to the African-American players were are two, parents in the home. Usually there was one, and the one was the mom. Sometimes it was the grandmother. But that's the way it's really been, especially in the African-American uh, culture, you know, forever. Uh, so, I mean, I really think that an extra emphasis should be placed on women. And yet at the same time, no matter what color a person is, no matter what group we want to help, I think that there's people have have got to be given... You know, help according to also what they they got to earn it as well. I mean, we you know once again, I don't think it's good whether it be for people minorities, people of color, women. It doesn't make any difference if you know you're just giving away stuff. I mean, they you know I think we have to set up mechanisms where people can earn whatever the organization, if it's a bank or whatever, is trying to give. You know, you got to earn it.
0: Yeah, and part of the challenge though, in a lot of your legacy organizations, especially in banking. It's a tradition in banking is you pretty much start with the company and then move up the ranks. Well, if you're looking at a 25 to 30-year career span, where right now leadership of most organizations started, the management team started back when there were quite a bit fewer women and people of color in the job pool for those types of organizations. And You know, how do organizations break through that? Because for lack of a better word, they have a good old boys network that ends up being white and male. And you're asking to find people that are different than the people that have gone through the organizations in the past. But that doesn't mean there's not skill sets. Um, I think one of the opportunities we have right now is the fact that organizations are right now dying to find people that have data analytics and programming skills. So that should be a good starting point. But we need people in management and on boards. You know this as well as anybody that our boards are devoid of people of color and women as well.
1: Right. Once again, it's almost like, I mean, I think that it's got to be an ongoing process. It's got to be a grassroots type of program. I mean, the banks, you know, have got to be more intentional, I think, in, first of all, letting people know what opportunities exist, sending people into the schools, You know, maybe holding meet and greets, town halls, maybe, you know, once again, one thing I often thought about is if I'm a bank and I'm in a community, I'm going to basically adopt a school because if I can basically adopt a school and have a working relationship with the local school or schools, then I have a chance of being in those schools on a much more regular basis. I have an opportunity of basically seeking out the best people that they have. And the people that also want what we have and giving them an opportunity to come in maybe early on with an internship doesn't have to be a high paying position, but a paid internship where people can come in and work, you know, during the summer or during vacations. And, you know, what's going to happen is when you get one good person, then that person now becomes, you know, maybe your best tool for recruiting other people. But you know, I'd say, hey, I would adopt a school, and obviously that would give me the opportunity to come in and speak, you know, at forums and come in and present talks and teach people, you know, about even just about finance and about the banking industry and the business. And that there are many, many. It's like in, in coaching and you know, athletics, there are so many jobs besides being a the, the player. I mean, you know, even beyond coaching and and the other, the other. Piece that that I always I would I always said as I you know through my coaching experience just something for people to think about if I'm looking for great people that have all the ingredients the education the work ethic the character one group of people that I'm looking at among many others young boys and girls men and women who have served as managers for athletic teams. You know, so not only am I looking for the best athletes, because many times those are great leaders with great leadership skills and you know high character and a great work ethic, but managers are incredible I mean they do everything for a team, and they are probably the most conscientious and the most loyal participants. In almost any program, I mean, you know, I look back at the managers I had, and boy, I tell you what, I would, if I were in business, I'd be hiring them in a minute, right? Because they've got all the things that you're looking for, as opposed to maybe the
0: the high scorer on the team. Oh, exactly. You know, when we look at leaders in general, why are so many leaders of organizations relatively silent on the major societal issues, both in the community? as well as, and maybe sometimes more importantly, within their own four walls. Now, mind you, during a time like this, almost every major officer of the corporation is being called on by the press and by their organization to make a statement, but that's about the only time they speak up. Why is it that so many leaders are so silent on the issues that are burning on a day-in, day-out basis?
1: Well, I really believe that a lot of times the people that we look at as leaders, they're really not the leaders. Leaders aren't always the people that are in front of the crowd. Sometimes they're the people in the middle of the group or maybe even at the back of the group because, you know, they lead more many times by example. So, But I think that the silence is many times it's a fear factor. It's people doubting themselves, you know, people wanting to protect their jobs. So it, it comes back to maybe a lot of people being selfish And maybe a lot of times it's about people not really being given the platform to speak up and to say what's going on. Like, for example, if, you know, I'm at a bank and there are things that are going on in the, quote unquote, in the black community that I want to know about, well, I'm going to go and first people, I'm going to seek out people of color from the community to maybe tell me what's going on because they're experiencing, they're living it. So. You know, like I said, you can't always go to the person that's necessarily making the most money and think that's your leader because it's not.
0: You know, one of the things you talk about is faith being a guiding post for good leadership. How do leaders within organizations speak more clearly and get to feel more comfortable around using faith as a guiding principle in the way they work, but also, more importantly, the way they lead their organizations?
1: There was a time when... If you didn't involve or invoke your faith in your leadership abilities or in leading, then you really weren't leading. But faith, some people, you know, refer to it as religion, whatever, you know, we've taken it out of the schools, we've taken it out of the workplace. So people are basically told they can't bring faith into it. And I think one of the first things that has to happen, I hope will happen someday is that people will basically be encouraged to speak from a faith base. I mean, I know that it's a lot easier for me, maybe than a lot of people, to talk about where I get a lot of my principles or try to get my principles from. And I think it can be done in a way that it won't offend people. I mean, you know, once again, if you're talking about your faith and you're bringing in examples, like, for example, if I was trying to talk about how to effectively communicate. And I use Jesus Christ as an example of a great communicator and how he spoke to people, how he got down and, and basically he could understand where people were coming from, and how he listened to people, and how he used stories to relate with people and to basically be able to get his points across. I mean, I think that if it was done in a way that people understood that you weren't trying to convert them to a certain religion, that you were just trying to use examples of how you communicate and what, you know, the way in which we're supposed to communicate.
0: It's amazing because right now, more than ever, I, I think your point was well taken that I think we've almost numbed the world to religion. We've made it almost Impossible for people to talk about religion, but it's different to talk about faith than religion. I think, you know, it's, again, saying, let's stand up for, I I think it's our comment we said earlier, the difference between ethics and morality. Ethics is something that is regulated right now by the government. I mean, especially in the banking community, Wells Fargo is a great example of an organization that's had more than their hands slapped. They've had handcuffs put on pretty much. Because of their breaking of the ethics of what is banking. Well, it's deeper than that, especially now. It's not what you have to do based on rules. It's what you should do based on morality. And I, I think, you know, when we look at income inequality, education inequality, when we look at racism, when we look at the issues of financial inclusion, the ability for—look at just what's happened in the inner city right now between the pandemic, where it affected the black community more than, than any other community. And then on top of that, now you, you have some vandalisms happen to these same community businesses. I think organizations have to ask themselves, what should we do? These answers are not that difficult. The problem is we get in our own way sometimes.
1: Well, we do, and you know, and it's really funny. It's like you know, I was thinking about okay, what are some of the things, like for example, the banking industry could do, and you know, in terms of giving people opportunities to own their own businesses. But then once that happens, you've got to. I mean, I think the more we can get people to basically be part of the solution, then it's less likely they're going to be part of the problem. So I mean if we allow more more people to have ownership you know to start out by first of all teaching them you know financial literacy and that starts in the early years in school something I wish I had learned to do a lot better when I was young
0: Agree yeah me too
1: you, you know what I'm saying Yep and then basically give people uh, like for example you know I I think about some of these moms we talked about mothers people of color particularly the women You know, a lot of these, like my wife works, does ministry work with an organization that basically helps first-time mothers, first of all, not abort their baby, but then really try to teach them and educate them about how they're going to take care of their baby. Well, a lot of these same women who go through those programs, they would be perfect candidates to basically be given an opportunity to maybe, you know, purchase their first home or maybe start their own business. You know, if I'm a bank, maybe I'm having things like shock Tank experiences at the school where I invite people to come in with their best entrepreneurial ideas, with their best ideas and inventions or what have you, because people are incredibly, incredibly talented and maybe reward some of those people and help them get started uh, opening up, you know, their own businesses or creating a pattern that you know, that maybe they've had in the works for a long time. I mean, there's a lot of little things that could be done.
0: You know, I'm I'm wondering, too, given that we've all felt a lot of pain over the last several months and we've seen how organizations responded to this most recent challenge in, in the communities, and do you think consumers are going to be more selective about who they partner with in their daily lives based on how these organizations responded during these tough times? In other words, is it going to be more important for people to look and say, what organizations were there for me when I needed them, as opposed to simply doing business with the closest financial institution or the closest grocery store or something like that?
1: I think so. I mean, you know, one thing that I sort of really applaud some of the different business organizations for doing is basically, you know, getting in touch with Some of their consumers, some of their customers, and saying, you know, we know there's, like, for example, this pandemic going on, and we know you're hurting right now financially. Let's see what we can do to work out a a solution that can not only get you through this time, but maybe help you moving forward. And people are never going to forget those people who tried to help them when they were in need. I mean, that's who you, I mean, you should go back to those people. So, I mean, if I've got a choice of, going to, you know, Bank A or Bank B, and I know that Bank B has been involved in my community, and I've seen them, and I've talked to them, and I've heard from them, and I've worked with them on different, you know, projects, then beautiful, it's just like, you know, with the police. I mean, I've been in situations, I have a friend of mine who has a program called Shooting for Peace, and it's probably not the right name right now, but the bottom line is it's a youth sports program particularly around basketball, and they bring in the police to help with the teaching and the coaching and just basically to talk with the kids and to be with the kids. And it basically begins to establish relationships, relationships that last a lifetime. And they're not built on fear. They're built on trust and love and respect because everything comes back to love anyhow. Do you really love the people you're working with enough to try and help them feed themselves.
0: So finally, you and I are about the same age. We have gone through decades where we've had a lot of talk that hasn't necessarily been followed up with the level of commitment to change that we might have expected. In fact, both of us, I'm sure, remember 1968 with our country being challenged by the Vietnam War, by racial tensions. By an election coming up and students rising up and really getting involved more as people in the political system and in the social system. but I look back and I, I think about the fact that I'm amazed how little progress we've made, I guess. i, I maybe I was uh, maybe looking at things from a different lens and thought more could happen. But given what we've seen in the last couple of weeks, in the last week for sure, and the number of people and the fact that we've had over 300 cities in the U.S. have marches on behalf of what's been going on. And I'm wondering, are you optimistic about the future?
1: Well, I'm optimistic about the fact that my faith says to me that someday my, my Lord and Savior is coming back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I'm optimistic. In fact, I always wish it was tonight. But I am. I'm optimistic. I still believe in America I believe in the people like yourself that want to try to make a difference in America. I believe in the fact in America, because we were founded on Judeo-Christian principles, that we have laws that everybody should have to abide by. It disturbs me, obviously, when when that doesn't happen, or it disturbs me when I see people who are trying to destroy our country from within and without, I mean, and that's going on every minute. I mean, there's so many things that, you know, we just need to do better. I think of all the humanity that has never, ever, ever had a chance to be born and to grow into productive, contributing citizens. I mean, so, yeah, you know, all that stuff bothers me. Like you said, we grew up during the 60s, and this is almost like a rerun.
0: Oh, so much. It's scary. I mean, you look and you go, I've been here before.
1: (laughs) Yes, that's the sad part. But, you know, maybe if we went back and we started teaching history again, U.S. history, civil history, kids, you know, were taught what the Constitution, the amendments, and the history of this country, then maybe we wouldn't repeat. But, you know, if you don't teach it, you don't learn about history, then it's going to repeat itself. And people are going to be wandering around in the wilderness for maybe another 40 years, (laughs) you know.
0: I will tell you, Mike, if it if it makes any difference, I almost broke down a couple of times because I think about what we've gone through in our lives and it, it may not be great, but I was talking to somebody yesterday saying, you know, we've got to keep talking about this stuff because if we don't, we get complacent and we can't just have it come about because of events that are never good or always bad. And I get inspired by the young people. I get inspired by the one big difference between 68 and now is the diversity of people that are speaking out, the diversity of people that are saying something. But you hit a, a real major soft spot about the, the teaching of history. I didn't think about that. But, you know, most of these people marching have no idea that this has happened before or that while we may think that nothing's changed, the reality is a lot has changed, both in the racial community as well as the gender community with women, but not enough. It's just not happening enough. And, and unfortunately, a lot of the times when something bad like what's happened in the last two weeks happens, it's because of what people have been taught in their families, because their family wasn't well-informed. Yep. People aren't born with hatred. Yeah. People aren't born with malintent. What happens is— And it's not rotten apples because, you know, in the police community, we say, oh, that was just a rotten apple. And they say, well, in the airline community, you can't have a rotten apple. You can't have some people that say, well, we'll land the plane correctly. And in some cases, they won't land the plane correctly. The reality is we got to hold everybody to a higher standard. But we also have to do a much better job of educating about why certain activities are wrong and why certain ones are right. And the fact that we have gone 55 years or 50, what, 52 years since 1968, and we've been here before. Yeah. I have to admit back then, probably starry-eyed, thought, I keep on looking back on, I cannot believe these things are still happening, because I never would have thought that we'd have the same challenges today as we had back then, and, and we do. Yeah,
1: you know, it's true. It's so true. But if we don't start teaching history, real American U.S. history again, we're doing. We're we're just waiting for these things to just keep happening over and over. I'm not saying that just teaching is going to make a difference, but it does. It would make it would help. It would help a tremendous amount. A lot of kids don't understand the struggles that their parents went through. Yep. <laughs> you know, like I tell my kids, oh yeah, I remember marching, you know, holding my wife's hand, you know, behind Martin Luther King Jr., you know, and as he was uh, having a, a peaceful demonstration in Boston and. You know, and then you tell you know you start talking about the fact that hey, you can't allow these people to start rioting and looting and stealing, and all of a sudden they think you know you're saying well you know that uh, it was okay that what happened. No, you're not saying that. But two wrongs don't make a right, you know. And I'd say, and I'm going to end with this as far as my end. I'm going to. I wish that I hope white people stop blaming themselves, you know, and thinking that you know just because they they're white. And, you know, that they're part of the problem. <laughs>
0: That's not it. I just picked up, or I didn't just pick up, it was being delivered today, that was basically sold out because uh, it's called white fragility. Yeah. And it's not about guilt. It's about understanding uh, why we have such a hard time talking about racism. Yeah. It's an interesting angle because it really has to do with, I was born this way. I, I I was born white. I can't do much about that. And I understand that it comes with built-in privileges in much the same way that your son was born with certain things that weren't granted to him. That said, that's right. We got to work with what we got. And given that, where do we work from here? And we got to, you know, your 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 comments at the very beginning about communication, I think resonates so strongly that it really gets down to if we don't try to talk and understand each other, yeah, we're going to get nowhere.
1: So so true. And you know, like they would, the kids would get mad at my son because he was my son. They they would, you know, like he was privileged. You know what I mean? Because he was my son, and um, you know the same thing, you know, is happening today with folks. You know, and and like I said, I never thought I'd ever see the day where where white folks would be saying that they were ashamed, that they regret being white. I mean, come on, man! It's, it's not it's not a white it's not a person's fault because of the color of their skin. No more no more than it's a person's fault on a negative side. You know.
0: Mike, I just can't thank you enough for being on the show today. And I could not think of somebody I'd rather be on the phone with right now than you with regard to talking about these subjects and and really digging deeper than surface level about what we need to do going forward. So I thank you for being on the show.
1: Well, I thank you for having me. I thank you for thinking that I could add something. I hope I did. I hope I didn't put anybody to sleep or not too many people to sleep. But there are people out there that want to make a difference, and that have some incredible ideas of how to bring people together. And obviously, one of the great vehicles for doing that is sport. Um, And you know, the whole work ethic that you develop through sport. And that transcends into business. So I thank you. This was a blessing.
0: That was quite an interview with Mike Jarvis. Um, It's our 49th episode of Banking Transformed. And I don't think we've had a more important interview or podcast episode since we started. Yes, the timing's key, but I think the message transcends timing. I think it goes beyond just being socially conscious and being aware today. It's really what the banking community has to do going forward every day, every month, every year to promote diversity, equality, inclusion, and really to build sustainable organizations that are doing what's morally right as well as what's ethically right. There's a lot to take away, but I think the clock's running. And right now, more than ever, it's important for all organizations, not just banking organizations, but all organizations, to step up the plate and do more than what's required. Thanks for listening to Banking Transformed, raise a top five banking podcast. I genuinely appreciate the support you have provided since we started this endeavor. If you enjoy what we are doing, please be sure to subscribe to Banking Transformed on your favorite podcast app. In addition, please take 30 to 45 seconds to show some love in the form of a review. It means the world to me. Finally, be sure to catch my most recent articles on the financial brand and check out the upcoming research we're doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience, and financial marketing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Lawnbreak, and audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Bruce. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay aware.